is evolutionary radio this is your host trevor karitz and we've got another really good episode for you guys if you'd like to listen to previous episodes you go to evolutionary.org forward slash podcasts steve you wanted to do the honors of introducing today's guest yeah we have a really smart guy tonight you probably probably heard of him um dr ben bigman he's joining us from halfway around the world so how you doing doctor yeah, I'm doing well. Thanks, Trevor. Thanks, Steve, for the invitation to talk about all things metabolism. Well, the first thing I want to say is I really appreciate you doing this podcast because there's a 12-hour time difference. So, I mean, Dr. Bickman really went out of his way to do the show, so we really appreciate that. Yeah, except it, it, the 12-hour time difference worked more in my favor. You know, being 9 o'clock in the morning, I'd rather do it for me at 9 in the morning than 9 in the evening. Ah, that, that, that's okay. So for it's way past uh, Trevor's bedtime. Yeah, exactly. Back to America. He's, we got to get him to bed. So tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah. So uh, as, uh, yeah, as any uh, listener would know, I, well, some may, uh, I'm a scientist. I work at Brigham Young University, and, and I run the Metabolism Research Lab. And I am also a professor, of course, which means I teach a class of ambitious, clever undergraduates that are all um, in the biomedical field, uh, nursing students and pre-med students. And that's very relevant, frankly, to the, uh, well, it's formed uh, the conclusions that I have come to. So my, my perspective on health and metabolic health in particular is, it certainly has its roots in my own research in my own lab or my mentor's labs throughout my academic training specifically looking at uh, insulin resistance and how we get there and what it does. But then the, the true kind of global, if you will, global, I mean, by way of the body. Uh, so maybe uh, I'll say systemic relevance of insulin resistance, how it affects the body um, from top to bottom. Uh, I, I really began to appreciate in my role as a professor when in the midst of preparing lectures, I would really try to focus on my strengths as a scientist. And so I would kind of ask myself, all right, I'm gonna teach a class about um, heart pathologies, you know, the diseases of the heart. Uh, is there anything relevant there with, with insulin resistance so that I can be a real authority here, you know, when I was a young professor. And I just was amazed at how frequently um, insulin resistance was relevant in virtually every chronic disease. So uh, that's, that's my, my, my professional story, personal story, I am, a sleep-deprived uh, husband and father of three pretty young kids, and that is, uh, that's really who I am, uh, first and foremost, husband, father, and then second to that is scientist professor. So, Dr. Bickman, the reason I really want to get you on this podcast is right now, keto is the hottest trending thing on social media, right? If you want Instagram, it's hashtag keto, hashtag keto, hashtag keto. So, one reason I want to do this podcast is obviously to capitalize on that so that when people are, you know, searching keto, they'll come and listen to our podcast. But then yeah. also, people are so confused on what a ketogenic diet is. And now with all these keto supplements and ketone supplements, a lot of people think all you have to do is buy this ketone supplement, take it, and then you're on a keto diet. Yeah. 
Yeah, so there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, Trevor, in your comment. Um, so my familiarity with ketones came or, or arose because of my expertise in insulin and the biochemistry of insulin. And for a diet to be considered ketogenic, which anyone can tease that apart and, and know that it means to be making ketones, a ketogenic diet is one where the insulin levels have been pushed down sufficiently not that it's a type 1 diabetic situation. We just mean an average non-type 1 diabetic person. They have changed their diet in such a way to so heavily favor the macronutrients that have little or no effect on insulin, namely protein and fat, and eschew the macronutrients that have a substantial effect on insulin, namely carbohydrates, most specifically refined and starchy carbohydrates. And that's not to say there's no place for carbohydrates. Uh, there certainly is, and it can be substantial on a ketogenic diet. But regardless of how the macronutrients have shifted, insulin has been brought down to a very low baseline level, if you will. When insulin is low, the body absolutely shifts its fuel to rely much more heavily on fat as energy source, away from glucose. So there's the sentiment that, are you a sugar burner or are you a fat burner? And if, if you're eating foods that are keeping your insulin high, you are a sugar burner. That, that glucose, that the blood sugar is, and to be more accurate, it is glucose. That is what's fueling the body uh, much, much more heavily. Um, and, and so fat um, breakdown, the oxidation of fat is much uh, less. However, when insulin is low, the body shifts to this higher level of fat burning. In fact, the fat burning is so high that the liver essentially begins taking these pieces of the fat through the process of oxidizing the fat. We get lots of little pieces of the fat, if you will, um, acetyl-CoA, it's called. And then the liver will shift that acetyl-CoA. And rather than put it into this energy cycle, we call it the, the citrate cycle or Krebs cycle. Um, but we may be getting, I may be getting too specific um, for the audience. But nevertheless, um, when insulin is low, the body is burning fat like gangbusters, so much so that it starts to turn some of it into ketones. And that then is ketogenic. We are making our own ketones and we can confirm that. And that is the, one, of the, uh, one of the real strong points of a ketogenic diet. It's the only diet I'm aware of where you can, in fact, measure how your adherence is. You know, you can pee on the ketone stick, blow on an, a ketone monitor, or make a, you know, a little prick of blood from a finger to measure your ketones. So that's because you're making your own ketones basically from your own fat. Steve, let me, let me ask one question quick, and then you can jump yeah. in. One question I've had, and I've never been able to get a clear answer on this, is what about insulogenic proteins and amino acids, like BCAs or whey protein? If someone was on a ketogenic diet and used you know, a whey protein isolate that would have you know, pretty much zero carbohydrates in it, would yeah. that kick them out of ketosis? And then same thing with BCA supplements. Yeah, excellent question. In fact, I would invite any listener, I'll touch on this now, um, the Cliff Notes version. Um, uh, but if any listener wants to dive a little deeper, that was the uh, topic of a talk that I gave at Low Carb in Colorado, a low carb meeting in Colorado just this year. So if someone just looked for Bickman and glucagon and, and insulin uh, and protein, you know, they'd find, they'd find that talk. But the this, this short version of that is uh, we've long said that protein is insulinogenic. 
Um, and the branched-chain amino acids are a very good example, them being more insulinogenic than other amino acids. And they're not all the same, and so it is important to appreciate that a protein constitutes its you know, constituent amino acids and what's the effect of the amino acids. And, and again, you're accurate in, in mentioning the branched-chain amino acids as particularly insulinogenic amino acids. Nevertheless, uh, my, my point being the degree to which amino acids elicit an insulin response is contingent on the degree to which the liver needs to be making glucose. Now, I'll say that one more time and then I'll clarify. Uh, the degree to which an amino acid elicits an insulin response depends on the degree to which the liver needs to be making glucose through this process of gluconeogenesis. Uh, now, what do I mean by all of that? If a person is eating a low carbohydrate diet, most of the glucose that is in their blood is in fact coming from gluconeogenesis as the liver is taking products from the blood like glycerol, like lactate, and to a lesser degree, certain amino acids, but to a far lesser degree, then the, the, the liver will turn that into glucose. And again, if you're a low carbohydrate diet, ketogenic diet, that's the main source of your glucose to, to fuel whatever cells in the body are using the glucose, most specifically the red blood cells. Uh, however, uh, when, oh, so, so you can't, the body can't afford to have a substantial insulin spike from the protein because it still needs the liver to be making glucose. And so if you eat a protein source and if there was a massive insulin spike, that would put the brakes on gluconeogenesis. And then all of a sudden the person becomes hypoglycemic and, and dies potentially or goes into a coma. Uh, and so we have to consider the insulin effect in context of the underlying glucose levels. If a person's eating a protein and there's um, and, and carbohydrate is coming in as well, yep, you're going, to have, you're going to have a typical insulin effect where the insulin goes up three or four times. However, when you eat protein in the context of a ketogenic diet, it has little or no effect on insulin. And moreover, it elicits a substantial increase in a hormone called glucagon, and glucagon acts very opposite from insulin. Whereas insulin inhibits ketogenesis, glucagon activates ketogenesis. And that's why we have the, like, uh, this, this con increasingly common subset of ketogenic diet adherents who um, embrace a purely carnivore diet. And that diet is heavily protein. You know, we're talking 40, maybe 50% protein in, in you know, most meats. Uh, muscle meats that people are eating, and they're still deeply ketogenic. And, and if, if, if insulin, like if, if the meat you know, from the beef steak was going to elicit a, a powerful insulin response, they should be kicked out of ketosis, and yet that just does not happen. So again, to sum it up neatly, um, the degree to which protein increases insulin depends on the person's underlying glycemia. If they have high glucose levels, in that they're eating glucose with the protein or around the time of the protein, there will be a substantial insulin effect that would alter ketogenesis. In the absence of carbohydrate, there's little or no effect to the point that ketogenesis and ketosis is sustained. We, we all know about insulin. I mean, a lot of guys, you know, bodybuilders, they inject it, but yeah. we don't hear that word glucagon very often. And yeah. And can you tell us a little bit more of what glucagon is and, you know, 
because it's, it's, you know, from what I know about it, like you said, it was, it's the opposite of insulin. Like, let's say you're fasting all day, your insulin levels will come down, your glucagon will go up, you'll be burning fat. So obviously we want higher glucagon and lower insulin if we want to burn fat. So tell us a little bit more about glucagon, if you can kind of sum it up in pure English for our listeners that have never heard of it. Yeah, gladly. Yeah, uh, glucagon is insulin's opposite, like I said, uh, and it, they really represent each of them this, they're kind of each the poster child for the two aspects of metabolism. When we talk about metabolism, strictly speaking, metabolism is the sum of all of the catabolic and anabolic reactions happening in the body, building things up, which is anabolic, and breaking things down, which is catabolic. Glucagon, whereas insulin is very anabolic, and that's why any guy who's looking to get to develop muscle mass, he'd be familiar with insulin because insulin does promote muscle growth. Now, it also, of course, very powerfully promotes fat cell growth, and that's relevant too um, to anyone who's looking to, uh, you know, exploit insulin's anabolic effect. It's a double-edged sword. Glucagon, in contrast, is the poster child for catabolic reactions. It wants to break things down. Now, it will, in other words, it wants to break down glycogen in the liver to tell the liver, hey, you got all this glucose stored up, it's time to share it with the body. It wants to break down fat in fat cells, signaling to the fat cells, hey, it's time to activate lipolysis. You got to share this fat with the body, the muscles need this fuel. So glucagon wants to mobilize energy. Now, lest someone take that too far, when I said glucagon is catabolic, someone may say, oh, well, geez, that's going to cut my muscle if I'm breaking down muscle. But muscle doesn't have glucagon receptors. And so that catabolic effect of glucagon, it's catabolic in an energy sense, where it's telling the liver to share its energy, it's telling the fat cell to share its energy. It is not telling the muscle to share its glycogen, which it never does. And it's not telling the muscle to break down its protein into amino acids to share and turn into glucose in the liver. That's not happening. The catabolic effect of glucagon is really limited to the liver and the fat, and it does nothing to the muscle. So that's just, kind of the primer on glucagon. I just have to throw this in. Um, you know, all these guys who, who say that, uh, you know, high glucagon and low insulin is going to burn your muscle away and, and all this stuff. Uh, this nope. is another example of why, like, these personal trainers and these diet coaches that read their books about like the, all this bro science that they tell yeah. you to eat, to eat 10 times a day. Like you're supposed to eat um, 22 hours out of the day or you're going to go into catabolism and no, lose all your muscle. <laughs> it's just laughable because we have human studies which prove it's not true, but they it's still true in that. And uh, it's good to hear you, um, you know, say stuff like this because most people, you know, think that uh, that it's the opposite is true and it's not. But how do you, you know, we all know with insulin, you know, we can inject insulin to, to raise insulin. Is there a way to kind of get glucagon up in the body? Yeah, but that's a, there is. I mean, you can, in fact, get glucagon. Um, and that can be uh, like a rescue medication to rapidly increase someone's glucose as it will pull the glucose from the liver. But it's, uh, you know, you got to be really delicate with these things. Hormones um, are powerful signals in the body. And, and so, no, I don't know of any situation where someone would be using glucagon 
in any sort of conventional uh, situation. So you got to drop insulin down though to get glucagon up, correct? Yeah, the two would not that's be up the at the same time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, right. yeah. So, so the so moment probably you probably have to implement meal timing to get your insulin down. Like you can't be oh, yeah. every hour to because your insulin will never come down and your glucagon will never go up. Correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And so that's why a, that's do these a, why do these diet gurus tell us that we're supposed to eat every hour? I, I don't know. I really don't know. They, they maybe maybe because they're thinking, well, you're going to get hungry if you don't eat every two hours, and so if you get hungry, you're going to binge. But that's you lose that your is, muscle. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to be honest, some of the conversation of eating more frequently, from what I have what I've gathered, stemmed historically from uh, from the beginning of when diabetics were treated with insulin, and it was this idea. Of, of the unfortunate insulin-treated diabetic, and again, a type 1 diabetic has no option. Insulin is the only treatment. A type 2 diabetic has lots of options, and insulin should not be the treatment. But nevertheless, when you're injecting with insulin, you're going to have these moments, potentially powerful moments of, of glucose really dropping. And then you, oh, I'm, I'm too low. I got to eat some carbohydrate. Oh, then you've overshot it. Well, then you've injected insulin again. Oh, you go too low, so I need to eat again. And so it was this idea of, well, if I'm eating frequently, I'm going up and down, but at least I'm kind of maintaining a good average blood glucose level. But we know more and more that those wild swings outside of normal glycemia are really telling for mortality, at least with type 1 diabetics. The further they're swinging from normal, the more lethal the disease gets. And as many, many people have seen and published research has confirmed, the more you restrict carbohydrates, the more level things get. You know, then the flux is just like this, even in the type 1 diabetic rather than something like that. So it is relevant controlling carbohydrates or being smart about starches that really is relevant to a type 1 diabetic, just like it is anyone who wants to control their insulin for whatever reason. And for me, it's to just maintain optimal metabolic health. You know, I, I told my wife early on in our marriage, sweetheart, I'm going to go bald really soon. I can't do anything about my hair, but I'm always going to look good with my shirt off. So I got to keep my insulin in control to do that. Got to keep my wife happy. <laughs> the, the, the misconception came from the thermic effect of food because it's true. Every time you read, every time you eat, you do burn calories because your body has to digest that food. But it's kind of like getting cash back on a credit card, right? Oh, every yeah. time you use that credit card, technically you do get money but you lose more money than you get. And that's the biggest problem is like, it's true that every time you eat, your body does have to expend calories in order to digest that food, but you're getting more calories than you're expending. So that's right. Like I always hear all the time, well, you have to eat eight meals a day to you know, keep your metabolism revving. That, that's that's what that is. You know, Trevor, if that really is the reason, then we can all just laugh for a solid 10 seconds because that is, you're absolutely right. It is so intuitive that someone would know I'm not, this is a net positive calorically. I mean, how foolish would it be to think that by eating, they're going to spend more calories than what they just consumed. That is just, you know, the paradigm of, of silly thinking. Now, with regards to the thermic effect of food, it is noteworthy that the macronutrients are profoundly different in their effects on thermic effect of food. Whereas fat and carbohydrate, the thermic effect is both quite low. The body's very good at pulling those in. Protein, its thermic effect, calorie for calorie, is about seven times higher than the other two. 
you know, it, it costs the body energy when you eat protein and the body takes those amino acids and says, all right, I'm going to build something with these amino acids. Uh, it's, it's, it's expensive. And so I actually don't like it when people refer to protein as a fuel source. I don't think that's accurate. And when we consider it a macronutrient and we count its calories, I don't think we're, I don't think we're doing ourselves a favor. Whereas carbohydrate and fat are decidedly fuel for the body, protein is building block. I don't think it's fair to call it a fuel. It is only the most extreme circumstances of fasting or starvation or, or, or just bizarre eating where protein is the main amino acids or the main fuel source. It is, it is just not accurate to really count that, you know, calorically. And now I need to be kind of careful because it does have an energetic value, but it's not used for energy. It's used for building. Anyway, that's my, that's a tangent though from the thermic effect of food. I want to kind of go back though, because we were talking about insulin and glucagon. And this is something that, um, this, a lot of guys out there are going to get butt hurt by this podcast. So if you're going to get butt hurt, just sign off right now and don't listen to the rest of the show because I'm about to pour a lot of you out there. But here's the thing, like, and this is something that a lot of people come to me with help on. Okay. And this is the problem that these people are convinced that a calorie is a calorie. And you just explained at the beginning of the show about how insulin and glucagon go in opposite ways. So if that's the case, okay, and you're not going to be able to burn fat when your insulin spikes and your glucagon comes down and you want to burn fat, doesn't it make sense that this whole IFYM thing is BS? Because if you're eating a pizza in a Diet Coke, even though the Diet Coke has zero calories, doesn't that Diet Coke and that pizza, which might have 300 calories, it cause a different effect on the body in terms of insulin than say eating some raw nuts or an avocado or a little grass fed beef or something like that. Without a doubt. Yeah. When people want to look at um, obesity and body fat, body weight balances strictly in the context of calorie number, I think we are only, uh, we're only, you know, doing something with one with one hand we're only looking at one part of this of this issue um because while energy does need to be accounted for you know according to the very accurate laws of thermodynamics we must account for energy as it's consumed you know it, when we try to account for all energy out uh, we uh, we have to consider hormones well in both energy in and out so Calories are the, the currency coming in and out of the body, but hormones dictate how that is used. Insulin wants to store energy, for example. Um, glucagon, for, as one of multiple catabolic hormones, uh, glucagon wants to use energy. And so we, we know that when you uh, treat someone, an untreated type 1 diabetic, or even a type 2 diabetic, when they start taking insulin as a therapy, their metabolic rate drops. That's been very well established. Insulin slows down metabolic rate in the body, but the average person wouldn't really appreciate that or think that it applies to eating a food that increases their insulin. And yet there are lines of evidence to show that a meal that is higher in carbohydrate elicits generally a smaller metabolic effect than a meal that is lower in carbohydrate and higher in protein fat or just higher in fat, moderate in protein as it usually goes. So, and even let's bring it back to ketones. 
which is a big part of our conversation. I had mentioned earlier that ketones are literally pieces of fat, small little pieces of fat, if you will. We've taken the fat molecule and started popping off the carbons in little sets of two. That's basically the origin. It's not basically, that is the origin of a ketone. And when you think about it, where are those ketones going? Yes, certainly some, much of it is staying in the body to be used as energy by the neurons, for example, by the muscle cells, um, which greedily use those, uh, use those ketones. But we're also excreting some of those little pieces of fat in our breath and in our urine. And that's pretty hard to account for, for the average person anywhere but a laboratory setting. That is actual energy that isn't affecting our metabolic rate, but it is in fact being expelled from the body. And so we need to appreciate that. This is pieces of fat that are not getting stored and don't have to be sort of lined up or queued up to go in and be used by the muscle. It's being literally just wasted from the body. Dr. Bickman, I love what you said. And I feel the biggest crime of our society is that we treat, we, we teach nutrition, but not metabolism, right? If you go to the average person, you show them a piece of bread, they'll be like, oh yeah, that's a carb. You show them a piece of chicken, they'll be like, oh, that's protein. You show them some nuts, they'll be like, oh yeah, that's fat. But no one understands metabolism, which is what your body actually does with the food you eat. Yeah, that's right. That's what I appreciate you trying to educate people on is because it's not as simple as calories in versus calories out. Like, I mean, we're not mathematical equations. We're living and breathing species. Yeah, and thank heavens, because what, what a terrible proposition to think that if I'm even a few calories over today, you know, however they may calculate that, however, whatever they think they're their actual total energy expenditure is, which no one can know. But imagine the tedium of every day, day in, day out. I've got to track every calorie and I've got to try to try to make a best guess of what my calories out are over this long-term perspective and then make sure that I'm perfectly balancing the books calorically so that I can stay in uh, the weight I'm at now or, or lose weight. Um, you know, it's, it's ridiculous. And when you can appreciate that there is just some wiggle room when you've lowered insulin, where the body's just less inclined um, to be storing energy in fat cells, like as is happening in a lower carbohydrate diet, then you just have more wiggle room. That's the freedom of someone on a ketogenic diet telling themselves and acting in a way where they say, I don't have to be counting my calories. If I'm hungry, I eat. If I'm not hungry, I don't eat, even if it's breakfast. I just had a conversation with someone yesterday and she'd started a low carbohydrate diet and is just really loving um, the, uh, how she's feeling. But she says, you know, I'm just not hungry in the mornings and so I don't know what to eat for breakfast. And I said, well, don't eat breakfast. The whole idea that you have to eat breakfast, that it's the most important meal of the day, that has its history far more in marketing and cereal yeah. companies than you it does actually. Diets. It was, Kellogg's, right? Yeah, Kellogg started that. Yeah, it's, it's, it's silly. And look how pervasive that sentiment is. I often will have students in my class, and it's not a dietetics class, it's a pathophysiology, it's the sick body class, but I just can't help but bring up the relevance of lifestyle and diet, you know, exercise and diet. I'll have students who say, well, I want to start my day with junk food because then it wires my body to really be using junk food for fuel and I can indulge a little more. And I'm saying, you got, you're, you're banana balls. I can't wait to see what you look like in five years because it's not going to be good. So Dr. Bickman, talk to us a little bit about carbohydrates and the importance of them. Because I don't want people to you know, listen to this podcast and think, carbohydrates are the devil. 
I'm never eating a cup of rice for the rest of my life. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and, you know, like, right. Especially, especially the, the majority of the listeners of this podcast are athletes are, you know, people who are going to the gym multiple days per week. So you've established the importance of, you know, healthy fats, protein. When, when should we be eating carbs? Yeah. Okay. So if, if yeah, there's a lot uh, uh, in, in your question uh, we could touch on. And to be clear, I am not at all waging war on carbohydrates, not at all. And as I mentioned at the beginning, I think a common ground um, is that for me, it's just, I want people to appreciate how relevant insulin is in their health and how dangerous it can be when it's elevated too frequently for too long. You can absolutely keep insulin in control, um, even on a diet that is almost completely carbohydrate. Like even a vegan can do this. I know some the people who are vegans and ketogenic in their diet. Mind you, it's very tricky. Um, and I often say that vegans, veganism is the privilege of the elite. You have to not only be educated enough to know what you're going to be deficient in nutritionally, but you have to be able to afford the supplements to make up for it. Um, but nevertheless, you can do it. You can control insulin. So yeah, carbohydrates are, are, are just fine and they can have a very good role in, in a healthy diet. Now, with regards to the athlete, a few sentiments are relevant. The athlete can indulge more. I mean, if, if there's someone were listening and they were saying, you know what, uh, I've been seeing, been seeing more and more evidence that ketones are really powerful, beneficial molecules in the body. We just published a paper relevant to your listeners where we found this just a couple months ago that ketones actually facilitate muscle cell survival. So it makes the muscle cells more robust and defending against injury. And so they, they just survive better. Uh, and that's of course relevant to anyone who's training and, and hoping to benefit from rapid recovery and or even reduce the time of recovery in general because the damage is mitigated. Uh, nevertheless, ketone, if someone's listening and they're thinking, I wanna be ketogenic, I wanna try this, they have a lot more wiggle room than the older sedentary person. You know, the older sedentary person, typically to be ketogenic, they have to limit their carbohydrates to around, you know, 20 to 40 grams per day, which is pretty limiting. Um, uh, but an athlete, a young, healthy, fit athlete, or not even that young, but just an active, fit athlete, they may be able, be, they may be able to increase their glucose to 75, 80, 90, maybe 100 grams of carbohydrate. And that's actually very reasonable. And, and, and still have, they're so insulin sensitive that their insulin, it comes up when they eat that and just comes down so quickly that they shift back into fat burning mode and thus back into this ketogenic mode. Um, now you asked, when should someone eat carbohydrate? <clears throat> that is one of these really big questions that there's no very clear answer to. In general, you would want to eat the carbohydrate if, if, if this is an athlete that is predominantly a glucose-fueled athlete. And that's an important distinction. As more and more athletes are just saying, I don't want to be fueled with glucose because that means i got to eat a lot of glucose, especially for an endurance event. You'll have more and more of these, especially endurance athletes, who say, I want to be fat-fueled, and then I don't have to eat as often, and I don't get the diarrhea on the course. I don't have the upset stomach. And there's, there's some very practical, powerful relevance to that. But in general, you want to make sure the glucose is out of your, the starch is out of your gut and into your blood before you're exercising. You don't want to have to put your body into a position to choose where it sends the blood. 
And of course, when you're digesting food, the intestines need more blood because they're working. They're, they're in fact working harder and they need the blood there to not only fuel their own working with oxygen and, and energy, but it also needs to then get the glucose from the um, gut into the blood. It doesn't, you don't want to keep it in the intestines. However, when you're exercising, so the intestines are calling for blood when we've eaten something. However, when we're exercising, as we all know, the muscles are calling for blood. And that's why the muscle gets pumped. It gets physically bigger in mass because there's so much more blood going to it because of the demand for the nutrients and for the gas exchange. It needs to be pulling, uh, pushing out that CO2 and get it away. It needs to get the hydrogen away so that the pH doesn't change. It needs to pull in the glucose and fats and maybe even ketones for fuel um, and needs the oxygen to facilitate the biochemical reactions to use, you know, to use fat and, and glucose for fuel. So all of that is what's dictating where the blood's going, who needs the blood. And, and again, my point being, if you're a glucose-fueled athlete, um, you want to try to get that glucose out of your gut and into your blood at, around the time you're starting and, and, and so, you know, maybe, I don't know, 30 minutes to an hour before, an hour maybe before, although, you know, it kind of depends on what you've eaten. It depends on um, the digestion rate of, of any individual, which can vary a little. Uh, but, but even having said that, um, the more rapidly the glucose is, is actually turned into glucose and absorbed, the better for the athlete. So you certainly don't want to be taking some big thick starchy food, you'd want to take just like an actual source of just glucose. And anything that's providing fructose isn't helping the muscle, not, not directly, because muscle can't use fructose um, at all, only the liver. I think um, most of our listeners are endurance athletes. Um, a lot of weight trainers never even ran a mile in their life. I kind of laugh whenever um, someone who's a weightlifter, because I used to be an endurance athlete, I used to run half marathons. I laugh when they say they, they need sugar before their workout, because I'm like, you're weight training, dude. You're weight training for 40 minutes. You don't need sugar to weight no, train. That's absolutely right. I mean, you're not. And, you're then, not. Uh, and then another thing that's pushed to, especially is those dex shakes because the dextrose, you know, and I'm telling, trying to explain to people, dude, these are for pro bodybuilders who are shoving IUs of insulin up their ass all day. They're the ones yep. that need the dex shakes. You don't need the dex shakes for, to weight train. So I, I kind of find that funny. I train fasted, you know, because what you just said about, you know, your body, where the blood goes and all this, I can't train with food in my belly. You know, it's it just, it's not the same. You want to be, you want to be light. You want to be fresh. So it makes no sense, but it goes back to, to what Trevor said at the beginning of the show about supplement companies. They really love to shove the supplements down our throats, the pre-workouts, the deck shakes, the protein powders, all this stuff, you know, and then uh, Kellogg, of course, you know, you gotta get, you gotta have your cereal for breakfast, you know? So we got to, it's hard to fight billions of dollars of uh, marketing, but is there any um, thing you can give us a, like books, websites that people can go on to kind of look at, you know, some of the stuff you're saying to kind of um, educate themselves a little more? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, there are, well, so you, you mentioned a lot of good points with a typical um, anabolic athlete or, or a resistance athlete, 
which frankly, I think every person should be engaging in some form of resistance training, every single person. The degree to which a person engages in aerobic, that can be very personal, but uh, it's, it's, you know, I'm, as I think about getting older and think about being a healthy grandpa, it's far more important to me um, that I am physically capable of lifting up my kids and my future grandkids and putting them above my head and putting them on my shoulder, getting up off the ground after wrestling with them. That really dictates how I want to train my body. And that in the end means I engage in resistance exercise. It's just so much more practical because I'm going to be, you know, using, relying on strength and mobility more than I am my ability to go and run five miles. Uh, and so I try, I choose to take a very practical perspective in that regard on how I train and how I think others should too. But you're right in mentioning the actual glucose need for uh, a power endurance athlete uh, is much, much less. Uh, and that's because of the inherent starts and stops that come with, um, you know, using set-based uh, workouts, you know, where it's, you're working out for this very finite time and you've, you've taken a break and then you start it up again and you've taken a break. That, that really relies quite heavily on the phosphagen system and less so on this glycogen or glucose system. Um, but nevertheless, they're using glucose for fuel uh, and potentially quite heavily, but that in no way means they need to be taking a shake. And I'm like you, I do not feel good. I don't feel comfortable when I have a lump of food in my gut when I'm, when I'm lifting, especially for me where I'm more of a body weight trainer, um, you know, more involved lately in calisthenics, just, you know, I'm kind of a wiry guy and I made the conclusion that I was going to change the way I was working out a bit. You know, I don't want to have a couple more pounds of food in me when I'm trying to do a muscle up. Dr. Beckman, we have a lot of listener questions for you. So you can kind of just rapid fire these. We've got quite yeah. a few listener questions that most people know it's pretty easy to test your blood glucose, right? You can just buy a blood glucose monitor. Um, you could even get blood work done to see your fasting blood glucose. What about insulin? Is there an easy way to check your insulin levels? Oh, Trevor, that the, the moment someone discovers how to do that, it's a game changer. And so, no, the answer is no. The only current way to do it is you go to your clinic, your doctor, some, some, some diagnostic center perhaps on the easy end, and you say, I want my insulin measured. And then it's a blood test. They actually pull the blood into a tube and send it to the lab. There is no easy way to do that. Um, and and that's, that's, a, that's a real barrier because it continues to put the emphasis, especially in the context of diabetes, which is a little off topic, but we continue to look at diabetes as a glucose disease when in fact it's an insulin disease, but because it's just so easy to measure glucose, it keeps kind of predominating the conversation and keeps having us look at the disease very incorrectly, but that's, that's a tangent, but no, there is no easy way to measure insulin, but if someone is persistent with their healthcare provider, and it also depends on where you are, you know, up in Canada, it would be more difficult because of the nature of the healthcare system to get that done. And it'll generally be easier, you know, in the US, which is kind of my typical base of operations when I'm not overseas on sabbatical. Um, but even then it kind of depends on who your insurance provider is and what they pay. But the short answer, no, there is no easy way to measure insulin. And that's very unfortunate. Anyone who does get their insulin measured, if they're trying to find a number, my number is, you want your insulin to be below six microunits. Um, generally around six is, is ideal. A lot of conventional thinking will say, no, 15 and below is, is okay. And that's just way too high. 
if you're if you're pissing out ketones though it probably means your insulin levels are low right absolutely that's and that is why I first began to appreciate ketones from a scientific perspective before I began explicitly experimenting with ketones in my lab and looking at what the ketones are doing to muscle cells and neurons, which we're doing now, and fat cells, which we're doing now, um, you know, pulling fat biopsies from people that are in and out of ketosis and looking at how the ketones have influenced the fat cell metabolism. But yeah, one of, like I said, where I started to say, my main interest in ketones from the beginning was this is an inverse marker of insulin. And that for me personally, and anyone I'm talking to, if they can detect ketones, that means their insulin is absolutely low. Now, how low? It would depend, I guess, on the person to a degree, but it does mean insulin is low. So if you're measuring ketones, you can at least have some confidence that you're controlling your insulin. And you can get those from the drugstore, by the way. They're about 10 or 12 bucks. So you can buy, they're called ketone strips. And uh, they're, but like, I have a quick question before Trevor asks the next question. Because you talked a little bit about this at the beginning. I have a lot of relatives who have diabetes and I know yeah. that they sell those ketone strips for diabetics. I'm kind of confused as to why a diabetic should check their ketones and what would cause them to have be pissing out ketones. That probably, yeah. I'm, I'm a little confused. If you can kind of like explain that in plain English real quick. Yeah, you bet, you bet. Uh, I'm glad to. So in a t it's, it's really only relevant in the context of a type one diabetic. A type 1 diabetic can, in fact, experience this very lethal condition called diabetic ketoacidosis. And I bet you could guess what their insulin levels are in that situation. Of course, if their ketones are so high that it's now affected pH in the body, genuinely making the body acidic, which is extremely uncommon and virtually impossible for the average person to achieve, um, they are, the, that's diabetic ketoacidosis. Their insulin is, is gone. So that's the case of a type 1 diabetic who's underdosing insulin. And some type 1 diabetics do that on purpose. They will deliberately skip their insulin injections or dose themselves with less than they know they need in order to stay thin. They've learned early on in their experience with insulin that their insulin makes them fat when they inject more of it because of how they're eating. You know, they'll eat a uh, cinnamon roll, one of my absolute favorite indulgences that I never indulge in, unfortunately, um, or fortunately. Uh, they'll eat a cinnamon roll and they'll say, well, I'm going to enjoy that cinnamon roll. I'm just not going to give myself my full insulin dose. And so my glucose is going to be really too high for a long time because of it. But my ketones are also going to be way high because they're not giving themselves enough insulin. But the, 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 the temptation in that situation is they say, well, I don't have to get fat from it. I can eat that cinnamon roll and stay as thin as I want as long as I underdose my insulin. And that's a genuine clinical eating disorder called diabulimia. Nevertheless, um, back to your question, what is the relevance in a type 2 diabetic? It's practically irrelevant. A type 2 diabetic will only, only in extremely odd, unique circumstances actually experience ketoacidosis because a type 2 diabetic almost always has elevated levels of insulin. And even though they need to take more insulin, it's because they're so resistant to insulin. They just have to take more and more in order to control their blood glucose levels. Um, there's a lot of tragedy to that perspective. But nevertheless, the ketone strips are generally a way for the type 1 diabetic to monitor how well they're controlling their insulin. If they're measuring ketones to a high degree, that means they're not being very smart with their insulin injections. And they need to be more diligent about it.
So that, that answer, that's kind of interesting. That kind of answer just proves the whole podcast that what you're saying is correct. Because you just, they're pretty much saying that if you're pissing out ketones, it means that your insulin, <laughs> insulin levels are, yeah. it, it pretty much sums it up. So anyone who wants to argue about, oh, you need high insulin levels. We actually had someone come on and say that everyone should inject insulin. Everybody. Oh my heavens. Oh my goodness. No. <laughs> I swear to God. No. I, I don't, so I don't like to, I don't like to curse. I don't like to curse, but if I were a, if I were a little more liberal in my language, I would, I would emphasize in the strongest possible terms how, how moronic that concept is. No, no one should be abusing insulin like that. Even someone who just wants to get jacked, there are better ways than messing around with a hormone like insulin. If you want to abuse other hormones, abuse other hormones. Don't mess with insulin. That is a powerful metabolic hormone that dictates how the body uses energy with potentially lethal consequences on both ends, you can have a you can have an arm a bro in the gym who overdoses on insulin, and then he gets into this diabetic coma um, or the shock state where when insulin's too high, it's pushed all of the glucose out of the blood into the cells, including muscle cells, but it's also smashed down the liver's ability to make ketones. And there's one cell type in the body that has to get its fuel from either glucose or ketones. No alternative and that's neurons. And so the brain shuts off. It says, hey, I'm not getting any energy anymore. I have to go, I have to turn off the lights because if I keep operating at this high level, I'm gonna die. And then eventually the person will die unless they're rescued. So maybe thank heavens they have that dextrose shake that their bro can shove down their mouth while they're unconscious on the ground because they injected too much insulin. That would rescue them and give them some glucose. But man, insulin's a powerful, powerful hormone and anyone who's taking it, I think, is a little um, wrong in their thinking. Is that a polite way to say? And anyone who's saying everyone should be taking it is an absolute um, is absolutely wrong. Okay, well, you, you heard it here first, Doctor Booth. Yeah, you take all the tests and GH you want, but uh, stay away from. Yeah, yeah, that's that's that's, that's my endorsement. It's a picture of me, you know, with <laughs> <laughs> with five vials of uh, Sustanon. Okay, yeah. we, got, we got five more listener questions, so blast them real quick. Metformin, yeah. what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, metformin is the only drug that I give a genuine kind of A grade for when it comes to improving insulin sensitivity. Uh, metformin has very few side effects. Often the person won't experience any side effects from it, and it does improve insulin sensitivity. Now, I'm not taking it, and I don't think a non-diabetic should take it. I've heard of some people wanting to take it as a longevity type of drug. Um, and I think that's a little silly. Um, and and I, I don't think you should ever take a drug unless there's an explicit reason to take it and lifestyle won't help um, improve it on its own. So, but, but with regards to a type two diabetic needing to improve insulin sensitivity or even for temporary kind of medically observed um, weight loss, metformin will help because it improves the insensitivity to insulin. I want to follow up on that too. Steve, I got four more questions. Let me blast these out. No, I just kind of just ask this real quick. It's important. Um, synthetic drugs, like all these drugs that people are taking, isn't that causing like acidosis in the body or could that be affecting their insulin or a glucagon? Because these well, are synthetic drugs. They're like man-made synthetic drugs. Wouldn't that, do they have any types of effects on people? I'm just curious. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. Huge effects on people. 
Um, but if, if you're getting specific with regards to what is it doing to hormones, insulin and glucagon, it would, again, totally depend on the drug. There are, uh, like metformin lowers insulin because it specifically improves the muscle sensitivity to insulin. So any given amount of insulin is able to more rapidly lower blood glucose. Uh, but then there are other drugs called GLP-1 agonists. And these are actually glucagon-like molecules um, that tell the body to kind of behave as if glucagon's there. And they are also powerful and generally well-received positive drugs. So yeah, yeah, I mean, to your point, drugs of course have powerful effects. Part of that reason is because they are in fact artificial molecules. And, and nevertheless, someone should always exhaust non-drug interventions first. Um, even, even with regards to performance, always just let your body see what it's capable of um, before anyone ever considers taking in something artificial. Next question, ketone supplements. What are your thoughts on those? Yeah, I, you know, that's, I've, I confess, my, my, my sentiments have somewhat evolved um, on ketone supplements. When I first heard about them, I thought, oh, that's, there's no upside to those things. It's someone who's just trying to fake ketosis because I imagined this situation where they're drinking their ketones on one hand and yet enjoying their, you know, Tim Hortons donuts in the other hand. You know, that's, that, that doesn't work. Sure, they're going to be in ketosis, but they're drinking the ketones. So uh, that was kind of what I imagined. Someone is really abusing that and, and yet you know, getting the urine ketone strip or pricking their finger for a ketone test and saying, oh, well, I'm in ketosis, so I'm doing fine. No. Uh, uh, however, if someone is trying to uh, clinically or therapeutically benefit from the ketones, like someone who experiences frequent migraines, mm, ketones could help. Someone who's experiencing dementia, ketones can probably help. Um, and ketones can, in fact, there's one study that I know of, ketones can lower uh, insulin, um, even. And so there could be, although there's other evidence to show that it increases insulin, so we'll see over time. Um, but yeah, I, I've warmed up to that idea that uh, clinically or therapeutically, there could be a role for a ketone supplement, but someone needs to be wary. Um, those ketone supplements generally are ketone salts, and a person's getting very high levels of minerals. And so they're probably going to have to really clean their teeth more to avoid a lot of plaque. Um, and they may be increasing the risk for kidney stones as the body's got to clear all those minerals out. So, and, and, uh, so they have to just be wary of what the ketone um, source is. But there can absolutely be a role for improving general health. But if a person just wants to generally improve metabolic health, they're going to, be, they're going to have far more success by going ketogenic making their own ketones because insulin's in control because so much of the benefit metabolically of a ketogenic diet is the controlled insulin. And then the increased ketones, well, that's just icing on the sugar-free cake. Okay, we got three more. Do yeah. ketogenic diets lower blood pressure? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so um, there are uh, uh, certain lines of evidence to show this, and that's because of insulin. When insulin comes down, um, that lowers the level of a hormone called aldosterone. And then aldosterone is a hormone that's primarily responsible for um, maintaining minerals in the body. If aldosterone's high, it's telling the kidneys, hey, reabsorb all that salt. And of course, where the salt goes, the water goes. And that means the water is staying more in the blood. And so the blood volume is higher. And of course, volume and pressure are related. As volume goes up, pressure goes up. And then in contrast, as insulin goes down, aldosterone goes down. The kidneys are excreting minerals more readily. And then excreting salt more readily. So there's a, a drop in blood pressure as a result. In fact, when someone who's on a blood pressure medication 
an anti-hypertensive medication, one of the things they need to be mindful of if they adopt a ketogenic diet is they may start to feel really faint. In other words, it's time to change the dose on that medication. So they really need to keep in touch with their healthcare practitioner and, and just say, hey, look, I'm, I'm feeling faint all the time. I'm almost blacking out every time I stand up. Um, and, and then, the, you know, under guidance, they could you know, start to reduce the dose. That's very common. Do ketogenic diets reduce inflammation? Yes, they do. And that's because of the explicit effect of ketones. There was a very well done study that found that ketones inhibit something called the NLRP3 inflammasome. And someone could just do that search, ketone NLRP3, and find immediately the paper I'm talking about. Um, but yes, there's a very direct effect of ketones inhibiting inflammation. The last question, and this is a tough one. What is the best way to transition off the keto diet? Off the keto diet? Yeah. Oh. I, you know, I, that's, I've never gotten that question. So you're saying someone's been adhering to a ketogenic diet, now they want to get off it. This is a question Colleen asked. What is the best slash safest way to transition off a ketogenic diet? So I'm guessing what she's asking is if, is if someone was eating zero carbs, like we're talking just trace carbs, you know, broccoli, asparagus, things like that, what would be the best way to slowly introduce carbs back into their diet? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think there's really not too much of a concern. Um, the, the only concern um, could potentially be that when you have been going through a state of really low insulin for a long time, in other words, let's say ketogenic diet, or in, well, more specifically or more accurately, um, long-term fasts. If you've done long, multi-day, multi-multi-day fasts, and then you just start eating a bunch of junk and it spikes up your insulin, in other words, refined carbohydrates, you can experience and potentially die from something called refeeding syndrome, which is this uh, insulin-induced rebalancing of electrolytes that ends up causing the body to become hypokalemic. Blood potassium goes lethally low and the neurons basically stop working and, and, and you can die. In a ketogenic diet, um, where you are still eating and you are getting bumps in insulin, albeit somewhat modest, there's much less concern. But I would say, I mean, that, that is a smart question if Colleen has in mind refeeding syndrome. I would say the way to do it is to just focus on real carbohydrates. If you're eating fruits and vegetables, um, then there's, there's no problem. And then if at that point, if you say, well, I'm tired of enjoying such supreme metabolic health, I want to start eating junk carbohydrates too, then then you just go anywhere you want from that. Uh, but, but if someone's eating extremely low carbohydrate, like only one piece of broccoli a day, I mean, this next step would be, all right, I'm just going to start eating more vegetables. I mean, vegetables are always safe, especially the, non, or the cruciferous, non-tuberous vegetables. If it grows above the ground as a vegetable, eat it. No problem. Eat it. Uh, and then, then they can kind of go from there. Start eating more of the tuberous vegetables. Start eating more fruits. Um, uh, and I'd say, I mean, if they start with the real carbohydrates, fruits and vegetables, there's never a problem there. Never, none whatsoever. Maybe, maybe digestive, like, cause I do prolonged fasting. When I come off, I prolong fast and I eat, it goes right through me. So maybe that's what they were kind of talking about too. Maybe, maybe that's were, a good, maybe yeah, they're worried a, about like, you know, like the stomach or digestion or something. Yeah. But she, she didn't say fast. She said ketogenic diet. So your yeah. point's good though. That's a good point though. And if that's what she meant, then your insight's probably really right on the hits the nail on the head. But assuming she's talking just like old fashioned, low carb, high fat ketogenic diet, 
I mean, if she's eating fruits and vegetables, that's the way to start. And then, and then if she wants to go beyond that because she says, well, I'm tired of being so lean, I want to gain weight and I want to get fatter, well, then go crazy. <laughs> don't want to get fat. One, one last question for you before Trevor closes up. We, we went over a lot of myths and stuff out there. Is there something else that we missed that really like, um, you know, bothers you that's out there in the fitness world? Because we see this all the time on the forums. I mean, it's, I feel like I'm fighting like billions of dollars of marketing every day on the forums. Yeah. People believe like Subway is healthy and that Gator Nation yeah. before their workout and all this shit. Yeah. So you something else. Yeah. 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 I guess there are a few things that irritate me, you know, other than my kids not, not being obedient. Uh, and that would be, um, one is I really get tired of the mTOR concern. People say, well, I shouldn't eat animal protein because it activates mTOR and that's going to cause cancer. And then I just am left thinking, show me the one study in a human where the tumor, the cancer cells, the tumor cells are a result of an mTOR mutation. And mTOR as people likely know in this audience causes cells to grow. But that's also why animal protein is just so darn good at promoting muscle growth because it activates mTOR. And so when people want to say, well, I don't want to eat protein at all because it's going to cause cancer through mTOR. No, show me, show me the data. Um, show me the study that shows that an mTOR mutation is the source of that human cancer. Um, I really would love to know that. And then even then, if there is, if someone does bring that to me, I'll say, well, then why aren't you more afraid of insulin? Because insulin activates mTOR far more than the branched chain amino acids do, by double, in fact. And so fear insulin, don't fear protein. Um, so that's, that's a real um, source of frustration for me. Moreover, how are you ever gonna stay, how are you ever gonna keep your lean mass if you're trying to keep mTOR as low as possible? You will not maintain lean mass if mTOR is down. It won't happen. You, you have to have that anabolic signal from mTOR and protein does it better than anything. Um, that's, that's a real irritation. So any listener, when anyone wants to hit you over the head with mTOR cancer protein, just give a smile and, and walk away. Give him, give him one of these. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. A, a, polite, <laughs> a polite gesture among some circles, yet for, among Dr. the informed, they know what Dr. you're doing. Dr. Vickman, how can our listeners find out more about you? Are you active on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter? Yeah, I am. And that, was, that is entirely... Um, to share research. I do not, it's none of my own, no pictures of me, no pictures of my kids doing cute little things. It's not, this isn't for personal uh, kind of promotion. It is strictly that I, a couple years ago, thought, you know, people need to be sharing the published research a little more. And there are some great people doing it. And I'm just one of those guys. So you can find me on Instagram and Twitter. And my handle is Ben Bickman, PhD. And Bickman is B-I-K-M-A-N, no C. Don't insult my ancestors by dumping a C in there. Ben Bickman, PhD. And then on Facebook, I just have a public profile page, Benjamin, uh, Benjamin Bickman. Uh, they can find me there where I share that research as well. Although I'm not on Facebook as much. It's just too noisy, you know, too much distraction on Facebook. Instagram um, and Twitter are just a really clean method. Uh, and they can just kind of keep tabs on research. Uh, my, my lab website, um, bickmanlab.byu.edu, you know, that's regularly, we update our publication list whenever we get some new papers published. I'll have all those links in the show notes for our listeners. Perfect. Dr. Bickman, I can't thank you enough for doing this podcast. One real problem we have with academia is we have absolute geniuses doing the research, but they're not sharing it. 
So I yeah, totally exactly. applaud you for, you know, being one of those geniuses, doing the research, but then also taking the time out of your day to do these podcasts, to educate the masses. Well, hey, it's my pleasure. I'm, I'm definitely not a genius, just a guy who spent time learning. Uh, that's all it is. It's just a matter of time. Anyone could learn this. It's just a matter of taking the time to do it. Um, but you're right. Uh, too often, the people who know aren't finding ways to share it. And that's what I want to do. And, that, and that's the problem is, you know, instead of having smart guys like you doing podcasts, we have some jerk off who, you know, reads one yeah. health out that magazine. Yeah. Genius and, and telling people to eat 10 meals a day and, you know, as long as you're counting your calories, you can have Pop-Tarts and Cheerios and, and all that good stuff. Yeah, I know. That's crazy. I, and, you know, there's room in any smart diet for a little indulgence, but come on. For your host, Trevor Kritzen, for my co-host, Steve Sweet, and for our special guest, Dr. Benjamin Bickman. This has been another episode of Evolutionary Radio. Live your life. Look good doing it. Thanks for listening. Thank you.